0: Hello everyone, it's September 7th, 2021, so this week it's Firefly's turn to attempt orbit, but not quite make it. They were done in by a reaver, wouldn't you know it? It was a valiant effort, and I'm sure they'll make it off this rock soon enough, but for now, let's get into what happened and liftoff! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 324 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So at the top of the show, let's talk about Virgin Galactic, and then we won't mention them again after that. Not that we're trying to
1: not mention them, but... Uh, yeah, it really sounded like you were, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like you were promising that we weren't going to do it again. Uh, so, yeah, the, the question is, what happened? So we know that, um, that the most recent flight with um, Branson on board went... Off its plane trajectory, it actually entered class A airspace, which, uh, you know, you, you can't, you can't do that without authorization. You can't do that. But it's, it's funny because like there's been this whole back and forth, um, where Virgin Galactic is like, nothing went wrong. Like the, the wind speed was, was wrong. And like our pilots responded appropriately and reported the wind speed change and did everything they could. Then other people are, are like, well, actually, no, you, you didn't do anything to. <laughs> <laughs> to address uh the winds and by the way the winds were not out of norm like they we, they had normal winds up at altitude so yeah so leaving your uh your protected airspace without authorization and apparently without cause that's going to be a setback
0: there were some concerns raised by a former pilot right uh the one who had flown on previous flights uh, which was uh, Mark Stuckey or Mark mm-hmm. forger or forger Stuckey and he raised some concerns and then apparently promptly after that he was was let go from Virgin Galactic.
1: Mm. And like who who are you going to believe? Like the PR department or the uh what did he do? He was the flight flight test director? Like everybody can can lie or misunderstand or, you know, mislead. Like it, you know, there's there's no guarantees until we have actual data, but like
2: yeah you want to follow your priors uh, you probably want to assume that it's the company <laughs> that's being a bit
1: yeah. off. <laughs> right the the spend department is the one that's spinning and the person who's willing to to risk his job is i don't know you know like like if you have a grievance that that does uh degrade your credibility but I don't think there's any indication that he did I don't know i don't know i'm not I'm not familiar enough with the situation to speculate too much
2: but we 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 do know at least though that the the spin department really did spin their statement after the faa grounded spaceship too <laughs> mm-hmm. They kind of just emphasized you know oh no one got hurt you know it was it was unfortunate and serious that you know our trajectory uh deviated a little bit from the permitted altitude but you know we we we, we did a good job of you know mm-hmm. rectifying it and there's just no issue and then uh that <laughs> <Ben Hallert, laughs> uh End of the show uh, uh, tweets right back at them immediately, basically pointing out <laughs> that they didn't mention any of that Class A airspace <laughs> yeah. violation at all, which is like you, uh, you say it's a big no-no uh, yeah. for good reason.
1: So yeah, uh, FAA is calling it a mishap and they're doing an investigation. So we will know uh, with high certainty what we know, I guess, you know, there's no guarantee that the investigation will explain everything, but it'll at least give us confidence in the data that we do have. So looking forward to that.
2: I'm going to uh, anticipate a short and sweet. In a <laughs> yeah, days. at least most likely. Yeah.
1: Depends on how long the mishap report is.
2: Yeah, unless it gets really salacious. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, so let's talk about Firefly Alpha, um, which had a launch failure, but I don't think there's any controversy surrounding that. I mean, there are some questions, but yeah, so Firefly Alpha, I, I guess we can call this episode Perlatum at Astra Part 2. You know, like it's very much the same kind of a feel to me. You know, we had this, you know, new company trying to get Deja to space. Vu. Yeah, yeah, things went sideways, literally again, although a little bit higher up. And I think also, you know, unsurprisingly, due to most likely an engine failure, um, I think almost certainly, really, um, but yeah, I guess we can talk about that. So what are your thoughts? Uh and did you watch it live? Because I didn't, I forgot, but I got I saw like a tweet or something and then I, you know, immediately took a look at it.
2: I caught it semi live where I was just immediately after the fact that I was catching the uh the reactions on social media live. <laughs>
1: mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I wasn't watching. So I, I think we kind of need to start out by talking about Alpha. It has four Reaver engines. So you, you can check these photos out in the in the show notes, but um I I've got two photos that I think tell a big story. Um one is the four Reavers on a test stand, and then the other one is them on the back of an alpha, um, with like the the covers, um on it, so you know the test stand image shows you the engines with no covers on them. It's kind of this nice, you know, peel away kind of <laughs> kind of yeah. illustration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, these four engines, like there, there are two main reasons to have more than one engine on your rocket, right? The I think the one that most people think of first is reliability. You you gain engine out capability. The other reason is that it's cheaper. Um, Smaller engines are cheaper to produce than big ones. Well, in this case, um, Firefly put four of these suckers on their rocket, um, and they were only doing it to reduce cost. As far as I can tell, they have uh, zero engine out capability. And part of the reason that they lose engine out capability is because of their TVC. Um, in a further effort to reduce cost, each of the engines only has one gimbal axis. Now, with four engines, that's not bad. Like that kind of acts like, you know, m- most of the control surfaces on an airplane or on, you know, a model rocket or something. Like you can tilt two of them in the X direction. You can tilt two of them in the Y direction. And between those two, you get three degrees of freedom, pitch, yaw, and roll. However, it means that even if you have enough thrust to make it to orbit, if you lose an engine, you also lose attitude, authority. So
0: because the way that these engines like Gimbal is that they can only move along one axis Um, and two move in the same axis, you know, like two that are like opposing each other, I guess you could say, diagonal from each other, and then you have the other two um, that move in the other axis. But if you lose one of those, then that doesn't really quite work out, does yeah. it?
1: Yeah, you, you lose half of your control authority yeah. in, in one axis. Like yeah. that, that can be pretty big depending on, you know, how much... Uh, you can gimbal your engine. So, um, we saw some, like, in hindsight, there were issues. Um, it seems like one of the engines failed pretty early on in the mission. So the, uh, the mission overview indicated that they were planning on reaching Mach 1 at T plus 67 seconds. However, during the launch, um, callouts from mission control, um, indicated they reached Mach 1 at Two minutes, 20 seconds. And, uh, Uncle Willie in the chat, um, not UNC Willie, we sorted this out. Uh, Uncle Willie says that, uh, with an engine out, you could lose variable throttle control for steering. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they're actually doing that, like throttling down one side of the rocket versus the other, but yeah, that's, that's totally, totally part of it. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, they, they got up to supersonic speeds slower than anticipated. So that kind of tells you that, that they were uh chooching along a little slowly. Um and I know that's not what, what chooch means. I don't care. I <laughs> <laughs> um and uh Scott Manley did what he called um old fashioned pixel counting. And he doesn't have he doesn't have full timestamps in his spreadsheet that he posted. It just says video time and that ranges between 20 and 31. So I, I kind of suspect that this is actually like 20 seconds into the video. And, and he's in particular using uh, Jack Bayer's um, footage for uh, NASA space flight. 20 seconds into the video is when the vehicle has actually like cleared the pad. At first, I thought it might be a minute and 20 seconds. Oh, actually, I see the the screen caps that he grabbed. Yeah, do they are like 20 seconds into the flight. But yeah, anyway, so at around uh, 25 seconds into the NASA spaceflight video, the vehicle uh, goes negative in acceleration for however uh, Scott's calculating uh, acceleration. And and an engine out... That early would seem to be required for such a low, uh, or such a long time to get up to Mach one. However, that raises a question: Why did it take them multiple minutes, like two, two minutes and thirty seconds, before the vehicle lost control? And yeah, it it they hit Mach one and then ten seconds later um, started spinning out of control. So, I I think it comes down to the difference in control authority that's required for flying that freaking fast.
0: Yeah. I mean, like flying supersonic, that's, you know, a separate regime. And I don't understand all of the dynamics there, but it is quite different. And so that's when things, you know, shift in a big way. So that actually makes yeah. sense. And I hadn't thought of it.
1: And even if the vehicle would have been stable had it been able to get into supersonic, there's a chance that it wouldn't. You know, that, that the destabilization came from breaking the sound barrier as well. Okay. So, uh, Mike in the chat says it looked like it started spinning right when they made the supersonic call. Uh, transonic controls are wonky, aren't they? And I kind of wonder if that's not super true because like transonic aerodynamic controls are wonky, but I don't know if thrust vector control necessarily has the same issues. Um, I feel like it would be more related to the forces on the vehicle going wonky. So yeah. Uh, Uncle Willie points out that the lack of acceleration was noticeable to viewers on the ground. I, you know, I, I saw a couple of people saying it looked like it, you know, slowed its acceleration, but I don't know if that's like super visible to the naked eye. Um And like the, to, to give an example, like, There was debris falling and there were people saying, oh, I think it's still going because they can't just by eye it's hard to tell that it's actually falling and it kind of just looks like it's arcing over and and heading up to orbit. So maybe that's something that people were able to accurately uh, deduce. Maybe it's just confirmation bias.
2: Kind of tough to say.
0: Yeah, it would be hard to tell. I mean, I don't think I could ever tell. Um, It's so high up and far away. Like maybe some people can see that.
2: It's tough when you don't have much of a reference frame because I mean, it's just up there in a black sky at some distance from you. That's uh, Big reason why I think a lot of UFO sightings. Yes. Mm -hmm. This thing was the size of a football field hovering. Well, are you sure?
1: (laughs) And uh, 90% of UFO sightings are the moon. The other 10% are Venus.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Venus does look great now. Actually,
0: so speaking of uh, its climb to orbit or its failed climb to orbit, it was flying Pretty much like due west, right? And this was an interesting fact that I couldn't understand it at first because I had heard about, um, they had said that there had been some debris that had fallen like north of Vandenberg. And I was like, well, the thing, like, you know, the thing flies south, but then I found out that it, you know, it didn't. And that's because they had a much wider flight corridor, I guess, or whatever the term is, you know, um, yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting that they were basically flying retrograde. So if they had got to orbit, they would have been flying in a retrograde orbit, which is kind of neat.
1: I agree
2: yeah don't and, say that too often
1: and i think it's it's pretty fair to assume that that if nothing had gone wrong and they made it to orbit they would have had enough fuel because i mean they were running at like 10% of their maximum payload capacity so yeah that how cool would that have been to have uh, a bunch of uh, satellites orbiting retrograde from this from this test flight Maybe it's a good time to talk about the payloads. So the, the payload package was called Dream, a dedicated research and educational accelerator mission. It included a number of CubeSats, one of which had a plasma thruster tech demo on board, which is really fun. My favorite, well, let me save my favorite for last. There were also non-technical payloads, uh, photos, memorabilia, that kind of thing. But my favorite is a drag sail for deorbit the upper stage mm-hmm. like it's it's really cool that you know it, it's uh like a demo mission i think it was built by uh by a university but they're like yeah we got this drag sail what you know what could we deorbit with it and Firefly's like well hey we've got an upper stage let's just uh, slap it on the on the second stage uh mm-hmm. and you can deorbit our, our upper stage for us i think that's really fantastic oh geez mike in the chat says their pr department really should have thought about the possibility of blowing up a, a bunch of students dreams <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there's this thing with firefly that you know like the like the company's called firefly uh the engines on the vehicle are called reavers which is a reference to the firefly tv show and then that made me think i wonder if they put a firefly box set up there because uh those are famous <laughs> just because you know they're always floating around
1: famous and no longer in production like that means True. we have one viewer Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh their press release uh indicated that they had no injuries. They said that they uh progressed to supersonic speed, so you know, we know that they were above Mach one for a hot second, um, and the press release also said uh, it was too early to draw conclusions as to the root cause, which is true. I just wish that they could have confirmed that they had an engine out. If you look at the at the plume in some of the videos, like mm-hmm. it's it's pretty clear that that it's it's off kilter.
0: So I'm bad at spotting these things, like I keep saying. Um, but um, looking at it, I do see that if not the plume, then at least one side of the vehicle right there on the bottom looks a little bit darker. Like you can see that there's just something that's, it's just, it's not as full looking as, you know, prior to the event. So that seems like a pretty good indication to me that they lost an engine too.
1: So, so I'm imagining uh, the folks in mission control seeing the engine out and just being like, well, we're not going to space today. During the Astra launch, you know, we saw the the wonderful googly eyes on the back of a pair of monitors. What what if they had googly eyes and it would have saved them? Uh, but instead, they put them in the memorabilia and they sent the googly eyes. They were trying to send the googly eyes up to space, and they should have kept them in mission control to promise a good flight.
0: See, I'm not familiar with. Is that like a tradition or something? Like having googly eyes. What? Is no. That, what well,
1: that? it 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 is for Astra. Um,
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least for the, the last couple of flights, there have been googly eyes. Speaking of photos, there's a, there's a fun, um, slow-mo video from, uh, Scott Manley. In the show notes, of course, and you can see the FTS explosion well enough to see the two different initiators. I'm assuming it's uh, upper stage and lower stage, and the the lower stage, if that's a correct assumption, the lower stage um, explosion is a lot slower than the upper stage, which is really cool because you know the the lower stage had let you know it was more empty. There was less fuel uh, and oxidizer in it. Um And if it wasn't absolutely less than the fuel and oxidizer in the upper stage at that point, at very least the fuel and oxidizer are farther apart, right? Because you've got the, the ullage space in the, in the tanks, So uh. that that's kind of fun.
0: Yeah, that was really cool to see. Um, it was a pretty good view of what it looks like to actually terminate a flight like that because, um, it was probably the coolest looking flight termination that I've seen. Like, it really, it looked more like something out of a movie, how like the whole thing blows up. It didn't just like vanish in a big ball of. Fire, but you could see the explosion happening because uh, the rocket was at just the right angle to see that. Because, you know, at that point, it was kind of like spinning around a little bit um, mm. and, and it was facing the right direction to get a good view of that. Yeah. And so the flight termination, right? Um, is this pretty similar, I guess, to Astra in that, you know, they knew that they had the engine out pretty early on, but they kept going because one, they wanted to make sure that they just had some distance between them and the base, um, but also that they wanted to collect as much data as possible. Um, yeah. I think that that's the logic. Although the flight termination was initiated by Space Force, um, that was another thing. Yeah, that's
1: that's what I interpreted as well.
0: Is that like a Vandenberg thing, or is that something for all rockets? And I just didn't know about it. You know, like if you're launching from a base, you know, like if you launch from Kennedy Space Center, would they do the same thing? Is that is that the responsibility of
1: Space Force? Yeah, I don't know. I I have a vague memory of different different companies making different arrangements. Um, and, uh, I, I think what might have happened is they kind of said, okay, we, we want to give you this responsibility so that, you know, we're, we know that it's, that it's safeguarded. Um, mm-hmm. that, we, that we're not going to, um, fail to recognize something on our own. We're going to let you specialize in that. Um, Mike in the chat says, uh, he thinks it's pretty standard, uh, as well. But yeah, I, I, I think that's generally the way it works. I'm, I'm sure that Firefly had, um, the ability to, to fire the FTS as well. Um, but you know, at, at this point, Vandenberg is providing the, the range equipment. So it, it makes sense that it, you know, it literally would have had to go through their equipment, even if Firefly, uh, initiated it. So it's, you know, pretty easy for them to send that signal on their own. All right. And, and before we move on, I wanted to read this little thing from Markusic. Uh, before the launch, he said he was most worried about the, timing of the launch clamps because they've got four of them and they all have to release at the same time. Um, and he said, I can accept if we ultimately find another problem, uh, that we could only have found in flight, but I just can't accept a ground system causing us to lose a mission. Mm-hmm. And I identify with that. With that emotion, like, you know, Mm -hmm. flight is crazy. There's nothing you can do to fully test except for flying it. But like these launch clamps, we have them on the ground, we can touch them, you know, they're within reach. If something goes wrong, it's going wrong on our doorstep. and, And that would really suck. And I think that really uh, kind of humanizes things. Yeah, uh, uh Mike in the chat says echoes of Electron
2: One there.
0: But I assume that if something had gone wrong with the launch clamps, they could have shut down the engines, right? They could have done a safe abort.
2: The, well, they did I mean, have an abort on this on this day before they launched, right? Right, they had, right. Um, And they didn't specify what it was. Uh, at least I don't think we know. Oh yet. yeah, that's right. Um, but they did have a yeah an abort earlier. Well, new video from Fire, <laughs> hot off the pre- <laughs> hot off the press. Uh Firefly released video that has uh, resolution and is zoomed in at a level that nothing else we've seen so far has been uh, even some good 4K stuff. And you can see, I mean, it was pretty clear already from what we had seen that, you know, you see a sputtering and then there's asymmetric thrust. Here yep. you can just straight up see there's just no rocket fire coming out of one of the four engines
0: right yeah and um, so that's kind of what i was yeah, okay okay yeah so this is a very good view and this is what i was talking about how you know once like i couldn't see the asymmetric plume let's say you know like the actual exhaust but i could see that one side of the rocket looked darker and uh yeah that's what it looked like to me
2: <laughs> apparently we just got the scoop <laughs> because that video has already been deleted evidently oh really oh. nope so uh yeah we are, uh, investigative journalists today.
0: <laughs> well, someone is, and we're just, uh, <laughs> their wow, coattails. Thank you,
2: Sam. That's wild. I mean, that, like, look at that view, though. That's, that's, mm-hmm. forget about it.
1: I'm sure that somebody has a mirror, but that sucks that they pulled it down.
2: And, and, I said, like, like, I mean, that is just so obvious, but that, that, uh, Kayvon Chambers video, YouTube video that you posted mm-hmm. where he has, uh, you know, where they have it, um, broken down by like, you know, segments like countdown and false abort, then the launch, then the engine failure, then the rocket flies upside down, and then termination. Um, but if you just play it at like one quarter speed, you just absolutely see, you know, the engine sputter and then suddenly, you know, there's now a symmetric engine fire or rocket fire coming out of one side and not the other. It's kinda like uh we, we knew there were gravitational waves before we actually detected gravitational waves. We knew there was an engine out before we saw the engine out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but notice that the the engine out is really low in the atmosphere it's not it's not within you know 30 seconds of the explosion or of the the control oh, loss yeah more it, like t it,
2: plus 10 seconds or so yeah yeah
1: it's like t plus 10 to t plus 20
0: well so we know that there was an engine out. so i guess the question now is what caused it and we'll talk about that hopefully next week hopefully next yeah,
2: week yeah <laughs> so do we have any other maiden flights like next week <laughs> i hope
0: not i don't, I don't think so <laughs> So let's do three short and sweet this week. What's the first one, Dennis?
2: Well, first up, new cracks discovered in ISS. Small cracks have been discovered on the International Space Station's Zarya model, according to Energia's chief engineer, Vladimir Solyov. This report follows on 2019's discovery of air leaking due to a crack in the Zvezda module, which cosmonauts were able to locate and finish patching earlier this year. While seemingly fixed, Russia reported another drop in the pressure of that module last month. Solovyov also stated that the fissures' presence in Zarya suggests that they will spread over time, although he didn't say whether any air has leaked due to the cracks.
0: That is scary news.
2: That's really upsetting for me. Is, That's another <laughs> like, thing
0: that maybe we I mean, I'd like to have more information on that to talk about because that seems like a big deal.
2: You have only, are we really going to see the end of the station coming? <laughs> like in yeah. the next like, year or two? Not like closer to the end of a decade
0: or whatever? Alright, um, next up Rocket Lab increases satellite component production. So in an effort to meet the demands of the growing satellite industry, Rocket Lab has increased reaction wheel production at its New Zealand facility. The reaction wheels formerly produced by a, a Canadian company that was acquired by Rocket Rocket Lab last year were being produced at a maximum rate of 150 per year. Rocket Lab hopes to manufacture around 2000 per year in an effort to meet demands from its customers, as yet unnamed. This increased production will also allow Rocket Lab to accelerate the manufacturing of its own photon rocket, avoiding bottlenecks caused by component shortages.
1: And finally, Perseverance sample collection update. So, the first week of August, Perseverance attempted to collect its first core sample from a rock nicknamed Rubion, but after the procedure took To transfer the sample into the adaptive caching assembly, it was discovered that no core was obtained. Views of the drill site and vehicle diagnostics came up empty, literally. The team has concluded now that the sample was not dropped or jammed somewhere inside the processing pathway, but instead had turned to dust and is now part of the cuttings pile and the dust at the bottom of the hole. The rock was simply not strong enough to yield a core. This week, a new sample from a rock named Rochette was obtained, and thanks to the additional step of taking photos of the coring bit, the Perseverance team has confirmed at least a partially successful drilling operation. Further images will determine if the sample hole has been cleared, and then mass and volume measurements will confirm whether or not a successful transfer occurred into a sample tube.
0: So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have winners. We have Kristen Lowe, uh, Ryan Regner, Ben Hallard, and the Greek. The clue, which knowing now, uh, what the event is, I have to say this is like a really good clue. So, uh, Thank good job, you. guys. <laughs> I, I like it. Uh, the clue is, uh, the end of the beginning and the beginning of the salvaging. And I guess I'll let you take it from there. But, uh, yeah, that's pretty clever. Okay. Go ahead.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it uh, I I I was lucky that uh, it kind of just jumped out at me pretty quick. <laughs> but yeah, so so this event was the eighth of September two thousand four. Uh, also, the minor miracle that I got the uh, the date range end of year correct. Um, not no,
1: you. not a minor miracle because I've decided that I'm sick and tired of us making dumb <laughs> mistakes. And I, remember, I went and checked it and read numbers aloud so that mm. the chat could help make sure that we got
2: it right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was good uh that was good verification I appreciate that uh uh David and Ben and the chat and uh that's also part of uh today's clue uh i wish uh, this mission did verification the way that we did but um this, <laughs> the event is the sample return and crash of the genesis capsule genesis as you might be uh aware is a uh, term that means origin or beginning and so it being the crash of this capsule that's how it's the end of the beginning the first half of the clue <laughs> but i'll talk yeah. about the salvaging later though and so um so some broad context this was the fifth discovery mission uh following stardust which was another sample return one right infamously had this Really cool looking aerogel. But, uh, even though Stardust was launched first, it didn't return its sample to Earth until, um, after, uh, Genesis did. And so Genesis was really the first, uh, capsule, uh, this first sample return mission that went beyond, you know, the Earth moon system, essentially, uh, into kind of deeper space. JPL was the managing director. Uh, Caltech had the, the principal investigator, uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory built a lot of the instruments, and Lockheed Martin was the industrial partner responsible for, you know, constructing the spacecraft bus itself. And um, this thing, um, you know, I always kind of poke fun of myself at how bad I am at describing... Uh, spacecraft, but I think I could do a decent job with this one. (laughs) And so it's essentially a table. (laughs) It's it's a spin-stabilized table that's got, you know, uh, two solar arrays, uh, hydrazine propulsion. So there's these two little round tanks for its propulsion. While on the table you have, you know, different, you know, uh, power units and, you know, some science instruments, you know, star trackers, things that, you know, you typically have on a spacecraft. Uh, The real, um, you know, centerpiece is the uh, sample return capsule, or SRC. And so I'm going to use that acronym a lot just because uh, talking about that s- sample return capsule uh, is important. And so that's kind of, you know, to give you a visual of what the spacecraft looks like, at least, you know, until it opens and starts doing its uh, sample collection, which is really cool. The reason it was called Genesis is because it's kind of looking into the origins of the solar system, right, with the, you know, the sun formed along, you know, the same time as the planets. And so this was really to kind of characterize just what the solar wind was made of, you know, in, in much, much better uh, detail than anything else had ever done because it was going to just directly... Sample it, you know, just directly collect the, uh, the ions coming from the sun. And so uh, it was launched uh, in August of 2001 on a Delta II 7326-9.5. So uh, once again, you got a, like a little uh, telephone number after the Delta rocket. But those uh, those first four digits all correspond to, um, well, the three, uh, the seven means it's a 7000 series. The three means it's got three boosters. The two just denotes the, uh, the second step engine in AJ-10. And the six indicates the third step engine, which is a star 37 FM motor. And then that dash 9.5, I, I kind of had forgotten that they would have dashes at the end of Delta uh, rockets sometimes, but that's just the uh, the 9.5 foot diameter fairing or 2.9 meters. And so um, this, you know, it, it launched in August 2001. There seemed to be a, a surprising amount of uh, very precise uh, timings that are like very kind of human based. So you'll see what I mean. Uh, after precisely one hour in its parking orbit, uh it did its third stage burn to take it to the uh Earth Sun uh uh L one Lagrange point. You know, it it you know took some time to get there, uh, and it got into its uh, HALO or Ju orbit uh, uh, on November 16th. And, um, you know, reaching L1, you know, I mean, it was there. And if you zoom out on the scale of the solar system, it was very close to there. But to give you a sense of just the the diameter of it as it orbits around that kind of gravitational uh, well, it was uh, 800,000 kilometers in a six-month period. And so for context, right, the Earth-Moon distance is Ballpark four hundred thousand kilometers. So it's basically kind of two lunar orbital radii, uh uh in terms of its its orbit around this um the L two point. And so uh, you know, pretty big, but again, that's when you are zoomed in on it. You know, if you look at the whole scale of the solar system, that's you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a tiny little six-month orbit around that, uh, the L1. There's just so much to talk about with this mission, so I'm going to do my best to not get too into the weeds because the the collection devices are really, really interesting, and how they decided to do this was really, really cool. And so let me uh, upload a couple images into the chat for context because I think here's the spacecraft itself. There's the table (laughs) with the sample collector on top. And then here is kind of a schematically what's going on with the sample collection. Okay. So you have this, the SRC, the sample return capsule, sitting on top in the center of the spacecraft. And then it can open up the, uh, essentially the, the kind of drogue chute side of it. The heat shell is the side touching the rest of the spacecraft bus, so that can't open. Uh, so the, the top of the capsule pops off the SRC. And that's going to be though, like everything that's coming back to earth. So that's going to include, you know, avionics, um, and parachutes and electronics, in addition to the actual, uh, collection sample that you want to have hermetically sealed. And so after that opens up, that lid opens the one direction, opening the other direction, 180 degrees opposite it is the, uh, the actual sampler itself, the sampling canisters lid. And on the underside of that lid, after it opens, exposed to space is, you know, uh, a a collection device, uh, which is essentially a tray. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the trays after I describe the rest of how it opens up. Okay. So you basically got, you know, it's like, you know, you open a lid in one direction, you open another lid in the other direction, and that lid happens to have a sample collector on its underside. And then you have a stack of four trays and one of them slides off to the side, or you, you can choose uh, when you want to do this. The tray on top is always going to be kind of exposed once you open it up, right? And that's true for the the tray that's on the underside of the lid. And so those were called the bulk detectors. And they were just going to be constantly collecting any solar particles once it was time to do that. And then what was neat was the remaining trays underneath this stack of four trays could slide out when you want them to do collections. And so they would wait. This was a three-year mission. They would wait until, I mean, it wasn't spending all three years at L1, but it spent most of its time there. Uh, when the solar wind was entering different regimes, you know, maybe it was a faster wind or slower wind or had, you know, different kind of things going on. It was more active, less active. When it would enter these different regimes, they would specifically roll out some of these lower trays so they'd be able to collect the solar wind when it was in that mode. And so you had sampling, but also sampling that depended on how the sun was behaving at that time, which I just think is a really neat, clever way to do this.
0: Yeah, that is clever.
2: And, and, and you do that just by sliding it out from underneath this, you know, stack of uh, four trays, right? It looks like, you know, if you stack four pancakes on top of each other. Also, when they revealed that they had um, built deeper into the bottom of the, uh, the actual sampling canister of what was called the uh, concentrator. And so this one had an applied voltage and uh, kind of in the same overall sense as a mass spectrometer works. How that voltage, that's going to affect different particles depending on their masses and charges. And so it was selected to pick uh, mostly carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen ions and accelerate them and actually focus them to a point in the back. Uh, and so you'd have a better signal to noise for uh, for those, which, you know, um, uh, you want to get. And so that's kind of it. Uh, there were the science instruments. Uh, listen to me when I yap about uh, when I yapped about uh, stereo. However many months ago that was. If you want to learn about those, it's the same thing. Anytime we do one of these solar missions, you park these, you know, different uh, kind of experiments on there that you know count electrons and things like that. Anyway, so that's kind of how this you know spacecraft is essentially set up. And you know the first array opened on uh, November 30th, which you know basically a couple of weeks after it got to L1. Uh, another one of the collectors that was uh, specifically for you know uh like I, I said when the sun was in different regimes an example of that what if there's a coronal mass ejection right uh that's when right there's a huge burst of particles coming from the sun so we see the light and we see that that's happening and so we had time to then go and tell um the the genesis spacecraft right which remember l1 that's the one in between the sun and the earth so we're able to basically see the light come from the sun we know that a cme or coronal mass ejection is happening and so we're like okay swing out one of those bad boys and mm-hmm. uh those lower trays and go and see what happens like do you happen to have, you know, a lot of different isotopes or uh, ions that come off during a, a CME? And so uh, that one they kind of revealed on day 193. Long story short is that, you know, they basically did their collection. And then uh, in April, uh, April 1st of 2004, they uh, stowed their trays. They packed things up. And again, exactly three weeks later... um they, uh, the spacecraft fired its four thrusters and headed out to L2, where it would shed a little bit of orbital energy, uh, right? That's going to be, you know, the, the Lagrange point on the far side of the Earth uh, and the sun. Uh, shed off some energy and swung back uh, to get towards the Earth. And now we're in the uh, sample return mode. So it did this collection. That was great. And I should actually say what the collectors are. Uh, that might be useful, right? I call them trays. So this isn't anything like the AeroGel that we had for, um, uh, you know, Stardust and, you know, for later missions like, uh, Hayabusa and Osiris Rex, where, you know, they would basically be blasting the, you know, uh, the, the regolith, uh, to go and basically travel deeper into the apparatus and then just kind of get trapped in there. These were, uh, a set of 73 centimeter diameter. The trays were 73 centimeters in diameter. So, you know, decent size, about the size of like a bass drum, I'd say in surface area. And, um... They consisted of fix- 55 hexagonal wafers each, and these uh, wafers were kind of like a, a almost a hodgepodge of different high-purity materials. And so they wanted to basically sample, because different materials were going to be better at collecting things, because all it was was essentially the ions come slamming in there and just get embedded into these, you know, half a millimeter thick uh, wafers. And so this included things like diamond, aluminum, silicon, uh, germanium, sapphire, molybdenum, and then combinations of things. Like, you know, it would be like, I don't know, sapphire coated gold or vice versa or something like that, you know. And so um, that's kind of, you know, how they approach this.
1: Were those um, materials like well characterized beforehand and they knew that this would be good at picking up this and this would be good at picking up that
2: yes and it was actually i mean i can i can read from a a document that we'll have in the show notes uh the process of choosing the materials was complex as the criteria used in the selection were influenced by a variety of factors some of which are not necessarily intuitive and so yeah they basically did a lot of work into kind of figuring out you know uh the trade-offs of one material versus another and then also how many of these wafers, would you want of the different types?
1: Any any of those selection uh, justifications stand out to you that you want to mention?
2: Uh, I did not look into them oh. <laughs> that much. <laughs> yeah, there was just a lot. That's kind
1: of what I figured. I mean, yeah, when yeah. it's the, complex and unintuitive, it's sometimes not the first thing you're going to read.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of, yeah, uh, 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 giving a cursory glance if there was anything, yeah, that jumped out about, like you know, how, uh, what was uh, interesting about it. And honestly, uh, it seemed that the the real name of the game. Was again, they're going to have different kind of like you know uh, uh, penetration lengths and you know diffusive losses during collection and things like that, uh, as well as how they interact with the solar light. You know, are they are they going to heat up more? Um, are they going to radiate less? And so, uh, but the 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 real uh, name of the game was that they had to be ultra pure. That was it for more than mm-hmm. anything, and that's because that's how you basically could tell what came from the sun versus you know what you had actually built and sent up there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I would say that was probably the most. Uh, 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 the the thing that stuck out uh, the most about the uh, actual collectors.
0: So I'm also wondering why the L1 point, although it does seem, you know, completely logical, but like were other types of orbits considered or um, was this just, you know, the obvious choice? Because uh, I would suspect that you could put it in some other kind of a, you know, heliocentric orbit, but then... It wouldn't be as close to Earth, and I guess that's just for the sake of convenience instead of, you know, just, like, having it go on its own little way and then come back sometime later. Because it does have to maintain that orbit, right? So that is a little bit more difficult, I suppose. I don't know. Probably not really, um, you know, as far as, like, station keeping goes.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I don't know enough about the history to know whether they, you know, uh, in, like, the development phase. Because presumably this, you know, if it's anything like a space mission, there was, you know, many decades <laughs> of, you know, mm. uh, concept studies before uh, you actually had hardware and then actually launched it. But um my guess is that just uh, a, a Lagrange point or or a heliocentric orbit was just kind of obvious for the reason that you know you want to be away from any other kind of planetary body and just have kind of pure solar wind. You just bathe in that solar wind and collect what you can there, um, right? That's why they didn't open it until they got there. Um, Lagrange points being stable probably make things a lot more uh, convenient, easier with communicating with the spacecraft. If you look at the solar panels, you see all these little knobs sticking off of it. There's a lot of low gain antennas on there. Uh, not all of them are, but uh, at least a number of them are. Uh, that That would probably be another thing is, and especially L1, you're kind of sitting, you know, in the same spot uh, relative to the Earth, but that's true for the other Lagrange points. L five, I think we could obviously rule that out. Why would you want to go to the far side of the Sun, <laughs> needlessly? Well, that
0: would be L three, actually. Or, sorry, that's, yeah.
2: yeah, right. Sorry, that's L three. Thank you.
0: But one and two, yeah. So at the L one point, it would have to maintain that halo orbit, which I mean, again, is probably not a big deal really. Um, and it is much more convenient. There's faster communication. They can use, mm-hmm. those, you know, they can use the low gain antennas. Um, this is way better than having it like orbit the Sun and then having to come back around, you know, like from you know the far side of the. Mm-hmm where and i think maybe just like you said if there was like a coronal mass ejection and i don't know what the difference is here but maybe they wouldn't be able to tell it to open up those you know collectors mm-hmm. in time i don't know actually uh, how fast the solar particles <laughs> travel uh, compared to the speed of light actually but anyway
2: yeah um i think it's also worth noting l1 is a lot closer to the earth than any other of the lagrange points mm-hmm. yeah so you're going to have better bandwidth with communication and you're not going to take as long to get there that that might have been the the, the ultimate factor. Yeah. Why why go in a trailing orbit that's gonna be, you know, possibly ten times further away from the earth, um or a leading orbit for that reason. But that's yeah, that's a good that's a good insight though. And 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 you know, L one is also obvious uh relative to L two for the fact that you're intercepting the solar wind before it washes past the, the earth as well. You know what I mean? And so if you just oh, wanna yeah, get yeah. as pristine a sample as you can.
1: I have a comment. I'm looking at the uh fault decision tree in the mishap report under drug system failure pyro failed mortar booster charge failed to fire one of the reasons is booster charge is a dud <laughs> <laughs> oh i <laughs> uh, like it they like it even the tree says is a dud <laughs> like, mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah that's funny i because in that report too i i thought it was funny that when they're discussing where some of the things are on the spacecraft um one of the instruments is kind of a uh, blocked the way that the di- the diagram is made and so they say that the genesis ion monitor is catty corner of gem nice. on the plus x sv deck yeah. as a new jersey i say diagonal um but yeah I like catty corner. (laughs) Okay, so that was the the mission, you know, going and collecting the samples and returning them to Earth. And so here's where, you know, the second half of the clue comes in. And this is when the SRC, the sample return capsule, actually comes uh, back to the surface of the Earth. And so uh, about 5.5 hours before reentry, the spacecraft actually spins up even faster, uh, presumably to stabilize the SRC. uh, And then it's separated. And, you know, comes on into the Earth, uh, passing through the atmosphere while the spacecraft um, uh, hits the brakes and goes into a parking orbit. uh, Just in case the capsule uh, fails to separate. Um, And so now you at least have your capsule with you in Earth orbit and you can try to diagnose uh, from there. Um, But it did separate successfully, which was good. And, you know, uh, it experienced up to 27 G's. Uh, on reentry and things were going nominally. The profile was good, all was looking sharp until uh, they got to thirty three kilometers altitude or one hundred and eight thousand feet when the drogue did not deploy. And you really need that drogue to deploy to slow you down and also to pull out the uh, the main parachute, which was a parafoil. And so it just kept cruising through the atmosphere like a bullet. It lost control and started tumbling and uh, eventually struck the ground um, in the same region. It was supposed to land at the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, um, but it hit the hit the dirt at about 311 kilometers per hour or 193 miles per hour. And so, you know, it's a pretty hardy uh, little uh, capsule, but uh, it's not supposed to do that. <laughs> and so, as you can imagine, uh, the container was shattered. And they basically, you know, uh, the, the the recovery helicopters go out there. They, you know, scoop it up and they take it to the clean room uh, that they had uh, set up for it and basically disassembled it. And we're able to tag fifteen thousand uh, fragments and actually get some good science out of it. So this was the salvaging part of the clue. The uh, it was the uh, the end of the beginning, right? The end of the Genesis spacecraft, or rather the capsule return, and then the beginning of the salvaging. So this was the uh, you know the beginning of trying to uh, get what you could out of that. And the long story short is that it was still successful. You know they still were able to do a lot of good science from it because here you had basically um, the you know. Uh, uh, cream of the crop, you know, creme de la creme, Uh, measurements of the composition, both in terms of, you know, how many different ions, you know, how much iron versus carbon versus, you know, beryllium, uh, is, is getting blown out of the sun, as well as the different isotopes, which can tell you interesting things. And it was actually, I think, those isotopic studies that were the more important ones, I think, uh, in the longer term for understanding things. As you can imagine, though, uh, why didn't that drogue, uh, deploy? And so a mishap investigation board was assembled and they found that this was, uh, well, it was, it was pretty frustrating. It was definitely, uh, an error there was a, uh, they call it the design flaw, but the, the long story short is that a gravity switch device. And I don't know if we've talked about gravity switch devices on the show before. Um, they're also called uh, G switch sensors, a G switch sensor basically is supposed to tell when the, you know, as the cap SRC is passing through the atmosphere, it's experiencing deceleration. And by the time it hits about three G's of deceleration, it's supposed to basically, you know, trigger some things that happen. And, um, the way it does it is it's, it's a little tube. So it's tiny. You basically put it on a little, uh, a relay card and, uh, it's about the diameter of the carbon in your pencil. If you still have a, a classic pencil and the way it works is this little nub, uh, this little, you know, tiny thing has essentially a, uh, a, a spring mass, uh, or, or plunger on the one side of it. And then, um, basically when it decelerates, it feels a force and it, uh, compresses the spring so that the other end, where the mass is not, has a contact. And so when it feels that acceleration, the spring compresses, it touches the contact, and it closes the circuit. And then you can arm things. And then once you leave 3Gs, it breaks the circuit because now the spring relaxes back to its uh, equilibrium position where it's no longer touching that contact on the far side. And so it's it's a pretty, uh I mean, it, they have applications, I'm sure, all in all sorts of industry. But, you know, yeah, it, it basically, it's a, it's an accelerometer because it's detecting acceleration. But in particular, it's, you know, it's an on-off switch, uh, depending on what kind of acceleration you uh, experience. Now, that's not going to work, though, if you put it in backwards. <laughs> so that oh, man. Mm-hmm. instead of the spring compressing, it's trying to go even further into the, <sighs> the same wall that it's on. And as a result you're never going to get a connection so it's never going to trigger the rest of the avionics that are want to basically deploy the drogue and have everything and do the other things right and and yeah and that's why it just kind of came in there cleanly and slammed into there.
1: Okay, but yeah. big brain time. Mm-hmm. If you came in through the atmosphere upside down, that would be a really good orientation for the gravity switch.
0: Oh, well, it would. <laughs> yeah,
1: I so guess it's that would it's work. not it's not that this thing was messed up it said it wasn't messed up enough
2: (laughs) they needed to put the uh the heat shield on backwards as well
1: yeah okay sorry i I gotta go put this joint out now
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's a funny idea yeah no and so yeah that that that's that that was the issue uh they put it in incorrectly uh why how did this happen well um so it turns out that they uh the 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 relay cards that these you know um uh, <laughs> these G-switch sensors were on were designed to be in an inverted orientation compared to how they were planned for Stardust, which also had these, right? I mean, that's another sample return, you know? And so for whatever reason, they just were like, okay, well, Genesis, we're going to have them going in this direction instead of Stardust's. But during the checking out of the spacecraft and some of the verification processes, they were comparing them directly to Stardust drawings. And so they were seeing them in the orientation similar to Stardust, but they were supposed to be inverted, but they're like, well, no, I mean, this is just based off of Stardust heritage, you know, and so clearly they're in the right direction, and so no problem, and that's just by examining drawings and everything, and then the performance tests that were done were actually done incorrectly, so you figure, okay, you're looking at the draw, you're, you know, you're, you're seeing it, and you, you know, you don't catch it when you see it, but at least, you know, when you actually do a performance test, it should trigger a-okay, but I guess the tests were done inverted as well. Oh gosh. And what? it was <laughs> it was due to the inexperience of the project integrity engineer who was an electrical engineer looking at mechanical engineering drawings and incorrectly interpreting them. And so the tests were designed incorrectly. Oh, wow. So this thing, ultimately the switches were inverted in the first place. The design review process didn't catch it. The verification process didn't catch it and the red team review process uh, like the team B kind of thing right uh didn't catch it either and so this was a it was quite incredible how it managed to make it through that many layers um and so as you can imagine the uh the mishap identification or investigation board had quite a few <laughs> uh, suggestions but uh, ultimately um some of the top uh, items I don't want to go into all the details but JPL uh, Needed to be, uh, uh, have more systems engineers be involved with the actual construction, uh, that Lockheed Martin was doing when they're actually building, you know, the, the SRC. And that, um, you know, the, the review process was inadequate to say the least. Um, that there was overconfidence in heritage hardware, right? This thing has flown before. We've flown these plenty of times, so we don't have to kind of uh, look at them too carefully, but evidently inverting them, uh, would be an issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they failed to test uh, as you fly and they even called out the whole, like, this is the early 2000s and so this is the faster, cheaper, cheaper, Uh, faster better cheaper uh philosophy era uh which you know i mean to some extent we still do yeah and so they kind of you know that that was not a major contributing factor it really was the review processes uh and some issues there and so uh long story short that's how uh that one slammed into the earth (laughs) uh but we still you know it's kind of the best type of failure though where it um you still you know are able to get something good out of it Yeah, the spacecraft uh basically uh then went and uh flew back out to l1 they still had uh uh thrusters uh you they still had fuel uh it was, again it was hydrazine monoprop and uh they basically maintained contact i don't know if they used uh i mean obviously they weren't collecting samples but they had the those science instruments that i ignored this whole uh <laughs> this week sf and uh basically until uh the middle of december uh, later that year so another couple months um they uh the spacecraft uh was there until they uh, uh stopped maintaining contact with it and so presumably that's where it's chilling to this day that is your uh, space flight history <laughs> this uh, that is this week in spaceflight history <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I guess just add that to the list of, uh, of you know like missions that have gone wrong because of components being installed upside I down I know
1: right it's, it's disturbingly long of a list <laughs> yeah well great thank you so much Dennis that's uh, that was a good one all right <laughs> thank you so uh, next week is the 14th through the 20th of September David do you have a clue for us
0: yes so next week uh, will be in 2013 and the clue is Virginia is for lovers of space.
1: (laughs) I like this one. All right. 2013. If you know what that clue uh, is in reference to, shoot us a tweet with the hashtag SF, And good luck, everybody.
0: Good luck. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got some launches. We got launches and a spacewalk. So the first one, uh, first event is a launch, and that's on December 9th. And that is the launch of uh, a Soyuz 2.1V with RASBIEG-1. And RASBIEG means takeoff. And this is a military satellite, a military optical reconnaissance satellite. And uh, apparently it was it used to be called Sviesta but uh, I guess they wanted to change that to not confuse it with the module.
2: Mm, good call.
0: Probably a good idea. Now, the uh, launch window is from 1900 UTC to 2100 UTC, so a fairly large launch window. And, then, and again, that's on September 9th, and that's launching from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia.
1: All right, then next up, we have a Russian spacewalk. Um, this is Spacewalk 50 for Russia. Um, they're going to continue outfitting um, Nauka. As you might expect, that's going to be... Uh, Noviski and Dubrov. And the spacewalk is scheduled to start at 11 a.m. Eastern time on September the 9th. That's Thursday. Uh, it's going to be around a five-hour spacewalk. Coverage is going to begin uh, 8.30 a.m. Uh, on Thursday. And this is all Eastern time. Um, and then let me let me jump forward in time. We're going to get ourselves out of, uh, out of sync here a little bit, but on Sunday, the 12th is going to be a U.S. spacewalk. This is spacewalk 77. This is for, uh, uh, more iRosa rollouts. Coverage begins at 7 a.m. Eastern time on Sunday. Uh And then the spacewalk is scheduled to actually start at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. And it's going to be about a six and a half hour spacewalk. And Dennis, why is this not a U.S. spacewalk?
2: <laughs> yeah. So this was the one that was postponed uh, when Mark Vande had the pinched nerve in his neck. And so since he's still got that going on, uh, Thomas Pesquet has taken his spot. And so this is going to be both a JAXA astronaut, uh, Aki Hoshide, and a you know ESA astronaut. And so this will be the first time ever that a non-NASA, uh, or that there'll be a U.S. EVA without a, a NASA astronaut. Hmm.
1: It's really the first time. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. International cooperation, yay!
2: Yay. On spacewalks, yeah. (laughs) And then finally, uh, more of a uh, heads up, but there's a a, a no earlier than uh, launch uh, set up for, uh, uh, it's a little outside of our range, it's uh, September 15th, but uh, it's a big deal, it's Inspiration4. and so keep an eye out for that. It's got the cupola uh, bubble where the, uh, yeah. the the docking port would typically be. If you haven't seen those pictures, check them out. It's really impressive. And uh, that's just going to be an amazing, you know, all sort of, you know, all non-NASA astronauts, you know, on board. You know what I mean? Like it's going to be a fully private, fully commercial. I don't know how they call it, but like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the first. Something else.
0: It's the first fully, I guess it's the first like fully private uh mission. So there's yeah, no government astronauts, I guess. I don't know. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, not not only that, but uh as far as I understand, nobody on board is employed by SpaceX.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah.
1: So it's it's literally tourist only, which is pretty cool. And so the the reason that we really want you to keep an eye out is because they're supposed to pick a launch window three days before the fifteenth. So I guess I'd be uh Sunday or Monday, depending on how they're defining things. So Uh, that could be, that could be coming up soon. All right. So, those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: Uh, with that, then, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jiggies and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly, including today's show where we had Uncle Willie, Delta V, Sam, Mike, and Chris, aka Stai Garfield, in the chat today. Thanks for joining us.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: And for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
1: The mission patch, the first generation mission patch, is about to sell out. I think I have two of them left. I believe I held back the uh, Apollo mission number patches because they've got a um, a serial number on the back. So I believe eight through 15 I have held back. I just don't know where they are. Those may become available at I was going to save them until the end, but right now there are only two left in my drawer. We have Generation 2 in production. It's on the way.
2: You can also join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. We will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you